All right, now time for our message here out of the book of Judges, out of a, maybe an unfamiliar passage to you. Um, you never heard of this, maybe this preached before, but out of the end, you may be saying that's probably for good reason, Morgan. Why did you pick this one? All right, uh, we'll see. Uh, the title of this message is called A Time Without a King, and it's from Judges chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, and then chapter 21, verse 25. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from me about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the, men departed from, then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, well, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me seeing I have a Levite as priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's God's word this morning. And we come now to the final section of the book of Judges and what an end it is. If you were to keep reading to the end of the book, you would find in it some of the darkest and most violent content in all of the Bible. So we should ask, why does the book end in this way? Well, <clears throat> at the beginning of the book, we're introduced to something that's called the Judges Cycle. It's a formula. And in it, the people of Israel who have not obeyed God, they've come out of, the pro- come out of uh, slavery, come through and over the Jordan River. Moses has delivered them. They've come now into their promised land. And God has told them to drive out all the idols in the land. They've not done so. They fall into worshiping those same idols. And therefore, they fall into slavery to the surrounding nations. When they cry out, God raises up deliverer after deliverer called Judges. And at first we read and find the judges are strong and they're, and they're strong inside and out. And the peace that he went for the people lasts for decades. But as time goes on, as you read the book, you'll find that not only are the people in the book of Judges growing more and more wicked and depraved, but the judges themselves grow more and more flawed and less and less effective, which leads us to where we are this morning. Where are we? Again, at the end of the book, at first, well, I'll put it like this, at first the book of Judges shows us good judges then it shows us bad judges, and now we come to the end of the book where there is no judge at all. There's no judge here. No ruler, no leader present in the last five chapters of the book, and therefore what it's showing us is this, the nature of the human heart without God. And, spoiler alert, while it's not a pretty picture at first, the book of Judges, though, in the end, ultimately points us to the great and glorious hero our hearts need And we're built for. Let's look at what the final section of Judges shows us. We're going to look at three things primarily. Number one, one man's boredom. 
There you go. Talking about boredom in church today. So Morgan, I was already there. All right. Don't need this to help. Number two, one priest's choice. And finally, one king's throne. Let's begin here. Number one, looking at one man's boredom. We should ask what's happening in the story here. The answer, not a lot. And that's the point. Verse 1 says, Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. His mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. All right, here's what's happened. There's a, a man named Micah, and he's stolen some silver from his mother. And when his mother grows angry over it, utters a curse about it, you know, he kind of feels bad, and he, he gives it back to her. She lets him off the hook immediately. She's got kind of a, you know, soft spot for the boy after all. She says, great, the silver's back. I'm going to give it all to God. But then she gives only a fraction of it. And the small fraction that she gives, she gives it to a silversmith to turn into idols and puts God's name on those idols. Then she gives those idols to her son Micah, who sets them up in their home to be a kind of privatized and personalized church worship experience. Now all he's missing in his happy little honey hole of church uh, is his own private priest. And lo and behold, in the story, one passes by, Micah basically bribes him to come away from his duty in the, in the tabernacle and into his home to be his permanent and personal priest. The chapter ends with Micah feeling really good about himself and where he stands with God. You should we gotta ask, what in the world is this all about? You know, everything in the book up to this point has at least been interesting. It's been interesting. It's fascinating on a certain level. There's epic battles, right? I mean, there's heroes and, you know, intricate plot points. And, uh, you know, there's special effects of point Samson, like his ropes burn off him and stuff. Uh, Gideon and Samson, they may be moral failures, but at least they're interesting. They do some good. But when you come to this passage, and come we did, I saw you, your eyes glazed over, <laughs> As I was reading, it's like, you know, that college textbook. You remember back that far? That college textbook you had to read like three times because the first two times it didn't take. See, Here's the thing. This passage is just, narratively speaking, boring. And that's the point. The other sections, you know, the one about Sam, uh, Samson could be called Revenge of the Fallen. Not a bad title, right? Uh, the one about Get, uh, Barrett could be called The Desolation of Sisera. But here, the best we can do is something like... Micah, his mom, and a Levite. <laughs> That's it. These people, they're totally, completely average. Micah cheats his mom, but then he gives the money back. You know, he's not really that good, but he's not really that bad either. He gives it back. Uh, the mom thanks God, but then she cheats God. You know, they, they want to worship God, but then, you know, they do it how they want. The, the Levite was on his way to do his duty to God, but then he takes a bribe to do it Micah's way. You're thinking, That's it. That's the plot. That's the worst plot, Morgan, than Transformers, you know, 4 or 14 or whatever's out now. Well, actually, I wouldn't go that far. It's not that bad. All right. These people, they're shallow, boring, uninteresting. What kind of story is this? What's going on? Why are we showing this? Well, what the author is showing us is what sin does to us, what it does to our lives. Let me ask you, what do you think sin, evil, darkness really do to people? And by the way, don't shrug the question. Every thinking and compassionate person today must give an answer to the question, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world today? Why are people being shot? Why is there injustice? Why is there, you know, beheadings in the desert? Cruelty. Why is this? See? And the answer the Bible gives is more ancient, more profound, 
more multidimensional and ultimately more insightful than any other answer ever given us. It's simply this. The Bible calls it sin. And what does it do to us? Well, the answer may be a surprise to you today. The Bible is showing us here that before we really ever become bad, we become boring. We become boring. Sin makes us boring. You say, Morgan, that's not true. You know, evil's exciting. I mean, look at the, the villains of literature and cinema. Look at Richard III, you know, or Macbeth, or Hannibal Lecter, or, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker in the Dark Knight. Those, those are interesting and exciting. Well, they are. But listen, they're all fictional. Let's look at a real villain for a moment. Hannah Arendt was a writer who attended the trial of a man named Adolf Eichmann. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was one of the main drivers and instigators of the final solution or the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. She attended Eichmann's trial and she studied the court records of what went on. In short, actually what was a controversial summary of it called the banality of evil, which is, means another, banality is another word for the word boring. She says evil's boring. And in her study of Eichmann, she found about Eichmann that this, she, that he claimed to have done far more than he actually had done. He wasn't that intelligent. He relied on family connections for his positions. He relied on stock phrases, cultural pressure to form his worldview. He had no real thought through positions of his own. He was insecure unless he was constantly joining a group or a club. That's how he got to be a part of the Nazi party. She included in the end that the person people held as the face of evil was actually just an unremarkable and frankly, utterly boring person. She concluded the book this way. Despite all the efforts of the prosecution, everybody could see that this man was not a monster, but it was difficult indeed not to suspect that he was a clown. Now what she's saying, again, she's saying that sin doesn't just lead us to be bad, it leads us to be boring. Why is this? Well, C.S. Lewis put it like this expertly, of course. He said to admire Satan, to, to, to really sin, to be involved in evil, is to give one's vote for a world of lies, propaganda, and hear this, incessant self-autobiography. He summarizes it this way. The real mark of hell, of sin, is a sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon what? The self, yeah. The Bible doesn't say that sin is boring. Many of you know it's exciting. Don't look at me like that, all right? Unfortunately, you found out the hard way. It's exciting. It doesn't say sin is boring. It says it makes you boring. Sin makes you boring because sin is a concentration upon the self. It makes you think about yourself at all times. You're constantly running things through the filter and the grid of how is this affecting me? See, how am I doing? How am I feeling? How is this making me feel? Am I being taken care of properly at every moment? See, let me ask you. You ever been in a prolonged conversation with someone on the phone or in person with someone who only talked about themselves, what was that like? Was that interesting or boring? Boring, right. See, Michael, Micah and his mother have a boring life. They don't really do much. They just kind of pitter-patter around, do stuff their own way. Why? They're all about themselves. And why are they all about themselves? Here's why. Because they have reduced God. They've reduced God. They've made him small, manageable. They want to worship him, so they make idols, and they put his name on them. They do with their money what they want, their time what they want. Put God's name on it, you see. Comfort, convenience. Let me tell you something this morning. God's not boring. You're boring. <laughs> I'm boring. So we say amen to that. All right. In and of ourselves, we're boring. God's not boring. Imagines the universe, throws out sparks, light, creation, dirt, rust, giraffes, tadpoles. What, throws everything out by his own imagination and breath. He's not boring. One touch from him changes everything. 
He's not boring, see? We're boring. And without, therefore, a great call on our lives by something greater than us, we'll always fall back into mediocrity, averageness, and the same old, same old. Years ago, once in Birmingham, Alabama, during the civil rights movement where Dr. Martin Luther King was giving a speech at a church, there was a a 200-pound white man who charged the stage and began to pummel King with his fists. King's aides rushed to protect him, but then they were astounded to watch as Dr. King turned into actually his assailant's protector, protecting him from his, his aides. Dr. King held this man tightly, and as the audience began to sing civil rights movement songs, King looked at him and told him, Their cause was just, violence was ultimately self-demeaning, and that their cause would win in the end. Then King turned and introduced the man to the crowd like a surprised guest or a long-lost friend. And then Roy James, a 24-year-old white male from New York, part of the American Nazi Party, began to weep in Dr. King's embrace. See, Dr. King had a big life. There's a largeness of soul that he had. Why? Because he had a big God. Didn't reduce God. Let me ask you, do you? Do you know that? Do you know there's a call on your life today for greatness? Now, I didn't say largeness necessarily, famousness. No, greatness. And there's a difference. Let me tell you this. I am most alive when I am pursuing and I'm in full pursuit of a God-given dream. I am most miserable when I am in full pursuit of a small Morgan-sized dream. (laughs) You have a reduced God, you have a boring life. You have a great God, you'll have a great life, a life full of risk and adventure and obstacles and challenge and courage, see? Oh, to get that though, you've got to have a God, hear this, who can contradict you who can challenge you, call you out. Listen, you don't make idols and put God's name on them. A God who can never challenge you. A God who can never call you out of where you are in your time commitments, your relationships with others, the poor, your sexuality. Listen, your time, he isn't a real God. He's just like you. Oh, how convenient. God thinks just like me, see? That's reducing God. Micah and his mom have done just that, and they're boring people. You say, well, but I want a God of love who just loves me just the way I am. Let me tell you, no, you don't. Yes and no, yes and no. You do want a God who loves you for you, no question. But here's what I want. I want a God who loves me so much, he won't leave me alone. He won't leave me how I am. And you want a God who can come and take your little puny, boring life and self and make you great. And that's what he does, see. But to have that, we can't reduce him. He's got to be bigger than us, larger than us, have enough gravity of a person, see, to call us out of the orbit of where we are and into a relationship with him. You got a boring God just like you? Guess what? Boring life. Big God who's beyond you? See, you have a big life. Your choice, though, and choose Every person must, which is what actually the passage shows us immediately next to the next character, not just Micah and his mother, but then it gives us a look at the priest and his choice, the choice that he makes. And so let's find out what happens to him. Verse 7 and 8 says, There now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, the, the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, Bethlehem and Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. Okay, here's this guy. He's a young man. He's a priest. That means he's called vocationally to serve God. He's called to rise above the banality, the mediocrity of his generation. But even he, with all his churching and rules, can't do it. And what does he do? It says he just wanders off. (laughs) Then he departed. No reason. Looking for what? Any place he wants to go. Doesn't really matter. Why? He's boring and bored too. His soul's empty. 
right? And he chooses to reduce God, and he takes a bribe to be Micah's personal priest, even though God had forbidden that type of worship. So let's ask ask now, though, who is this mystery Levite? The narrative kind of leaves us hanging until later that it tells us exactly who this person is. In chapter 18, we, we find out who he is and what happened as a result of his choice. Chapter 18 says his name was this, Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses. He and his sons were priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Now this is shocking. Let me tell you what this means. This is telling us that one of Moses's own descendants, not his grandson, this word means descendants, he's a descendant of Moses, and he served as the priest of one tribe, who then hires him after uh, Levite serves in Micah's home. The people of Dan take him, he serves them as their personal priest, and then it says his own sons followed in his steps and served in the same way. And later on, we find out this place they set up this false way to worship was actually a place that became a permanent place of idol worship for the Israelites for generations to come. See, in other words, one decision Jonathan the Levite made on one day, get this, not out of malice, not out of spite, out of boredom, changed the fate of his life, his family, his sons, his nation, and led thousands to fall away from God. Oh, what does this show us? shows us this, that sin's ultimate goal is to get us to underestimate it. One bribe, taken one day, one decision to step away from God's will, ended in disaster. Let me ask you, is it fair? No. Is it reality? Does this happen in real life? Yes, it does. But why? Well, do you know the very first time where the word sin is mentioned in the Bible? It's in Genesis 4. It's not in connection with Adam and Eve. Those of you who thought that were wrong. You were wrong. You're wrong. Not a connection with Adam and Eve. It's actually in the story of their children. First children, Cain and Abel. And in the story, Cain and Abel, they're, 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 they're growing. And in the story, Cain's heart is growing hard towards God. And God, in his mercy, he comes to Cain and he says this. He says the first time the word sin is used. He said, sin is what? Crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. That's what sin does. It crouches. Now, what does it mean to crouch? Well, it, makes, it means to make yourself look smaller than you are. Now, it's kind of hard for me. I'm not the biggest guy in the world, but even I can make myself smaller than I am, right? You crouch down. What happens? You underestimate the power of the person, of the thing. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin always makes itself look smaller and more deadly, less deadly than it really is. And the best illustration I've found from this is from a story cycle called Tales of the Kingdom by David and Karen Maines. Maybe you've read these before. It's about a young girl named Princess Amanda. And Princess Amanda lives in Great Park. It's the lone place of safety from those who have been rescued from the dark enchanter and evil enchanted city. A man named Caretaker, his wife Mercy, and brave rangers take care of Great Park. And they await the day the king will return. The king will come back and set everything to rights. And because it's a fairy tale, of course, every spring dragons fly through and dragons will lay their eggs around Great Park. But one of the first rules of living in Great Park is this. It's forbidden to keep dragon eggs because dragons, after all, grow up. And dragons, after all, burn things. Now, one day, Princess Amanda is out wandering. She's bored. When she discovers two dragon eggs, she did not take them to caretaker's cottage for him to deal with. Instead, she kept them. One egg died, but the other egg lived, and one morning, one dragon hatched. The story tells us that she said, I must take you to caretaker. He will know what to do about surprise hatchlings. 
The little beast turned its brown eye on her, and a great tear dropped onto its breast. Amanda began to love the baby dragon. Though she knew it was forbidden, she kept a hatchling for a pet. Just for a little while, she thought, perhaps I can tame it. The dragon continued to grow, and Amanda continued to feed it and and play with it. But then Amanda soon discovered that her pet hated to be left by itself. The dragonette particularly hated to be left alone at night. And so Amanda began to stay away from the great celebrations where her friends gathered. Amanda became angry at the law that kept her from sharing her pet with others. What harm is one small dragon, she thought. And the dragon kept on growing and became big enough to breathe fire. It began to light small fires in Amanda's secret place, but of course she put those out and kept people from knowing them, knowing about them. But one night, the dragon, as the dragon grew, Amanda realized that the scales of the dragon slipping beside her were very hard. She knew, she knew that its big body was crowding her and that grown dragons were no laughing matter. This was the last night she would allow the dragon to return from its hiding place in the forest to sleep with her in the den. It had become too big, and Princess Amanda was afraid. Somehow, she had to get rid of the dragon, but still she didn't. And a few mornings later, she awoke to the smell of smoke and fire. The dragon had set the forest on fire, and she was now scared for her home and her life and her friends. Suddenly, she knew, it says, great harm could come from one small, tame dragon. Small, tame things grow into big, wild beasts. She finds a dragon. She confronts it, commands it to leave. But when it heard her call, it says, it stepped out of the trees into the meadow to face her. Amanda gasped. It had grown even more, and she had not noticed how much. The dragon had become cunning. Why had she not seen this? The dragon ultimately then comes to kill her, and though she wins the fight, it costs her dearly, and those who come to her aid pay the ultimate price. Why had she not seen how large it had become? Here's why. Because no matter what size a forbidden thing is, it always appears smaller than it is in reality. See, as an egg, Amanda underestimated the dragon's power. As a full-grown beast, Amanda underestimated its power. It didn't matter how big or small it was. The power of sin, see, forbidden things, is that it always causes you to underestimate it. And the Levite here has done just that. Do you think when he took that bribe that day, he knew what it would do to his sons? He knew what it would do to generations to come and to his whole nation? Of course not. See, but he underestimated sin. That's the power of it. And now here at the end of Judges, it shows us what happens when a whole people underestimate the power of sin. And the final and gut-wrenching chapters of the book tell the story of another Levite gone bad who takes a woman not to marry her, but to be only his lover against God's command. She then leaves him, and later we can understand why. Tragically, he goes and he gets her back from her father's house to bring her home to be his lover again. On the way home, they stop, not in a foreign country, but in a town in Israel where supposedly good men, men of God, are going to be. But that night, men in the town come. They take her and they gang rape her. After the Levite gives them to her to save his own skin. And when she dies the next morning on the doorstep, after a night of brutality, he only mourns her as the loss of his property. He then dismembers her. He cuts her up, mails her corpse out to the four corners of a nation, not as a means of justice, but as revenge, which in turn sparks a civil war and ultimately the genocide, the massacre of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's how the book ends. (laughs) Congratulations to us. Now, some of you may be saying, oh God, this is what I hate about the Bible. It's what I hate about it. All the violence, right? All the bloodshed, the killing. It's so primitive now. First of all, yes, be offended by these actions. But 
don't be offended by its inclusion in the Bible. If you're offended by this inclu- being included in the Bible, let me just say, this is in the 11th century. Don't go see movies in the 21st century AD. I mean, have you seen The Body Count and The Expendables? Lucy, that's out, right? The Godfathers, the movies? Don't be, you're not offended by that. So don't be offended by this being included in the Bible. And if you are offended by this being included in the Bible, it means this. It means your slip is showing. Slip is showing. Say, what do you mean? I mean this. Most people come to the Bible thinking it's fundamentally about trying to teach us how to live better lives and that it's there to help fundamentally good people become better people and improve themselves. But that's not what the Bible is about at all. It's not primarily about good inspirational stories. I mean, where's the inspiration here? I'm not feeling inspired. Are you feeling inspired? I don't think so. There's none. It's not primarily teaching us how to be like the people we read about. I mean, who do you want to be like here? Micah? His mother? His Levites? Priest? No. Where are the heroes? The good people. There aren't any, see. And therefore, the end of the book of Judges shows us more clearly and powerfully than any other place in the Bible what Romans 3 says. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not one righteous before God. See, and right here, this brutal ending not only shows us what's wrong with the world, but it shows us what God's whole plan to save the whole planet is all about. You say, where is that? I must have missed it. It's right here, the final verse of the book of Judges. What does the narrator want us to see is the point of the book. The point of all the darkness and violence is this. It says, in those days, there was no, what, king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And let me tell you, this isn't just a shocking ending. It's actually a surprise ending. This is a twist of an ending as well. You've got to catch this. Because after a book, 21 chapters about judges, the verdict the narrator gives us for what's wrong with humanity, it doesn't say the problem is there wasn't a judge. See, the problem is there's not what? A king. A king. Why does it say this? Why doesn't it say judge? Oh, it says this ultimately to point us to a greater truth, which we're going to look at right now. Number three, one king's throne. One king's throne. Now, many commentators believe that the author of Judges here was in part trying to make a case for the rule of King David many years later. And whether or not that's true, what God is doing here, I believe, is to use, he's using this author to show us to show humanity a staggering truth about its own heart, and it's this. We need a certain kind of deliverer, but it's not a military chieftain, a big strong man, a wise woman, a charismatic fighter. No, we need this. We need a king. We need a king. Why does the Bible tell us this, or how does it lay this out? Three thoughts, so we're going to move through them quickly. The Bible says about a king, it says that there is a king, but that we hate the king, but ultimately that we need the king. Look at this through the lens of Psalm 2 briefly. First, there is a king, the Bible tells us, front to back. Psalm 2 is a song about a great king. It puts this truth like this when it says that God says, as for me, I have installed what? My king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Oh, God's saying, listen, above and beyond and behind and beneath all kings, there is my king, the true king which I have put upon the throne. Let me ask you, have you noticed, ever noticed, how much of the world's literature and movies and plays or almost every culture throughout all time are about kings. They always go something like this. They go like this. Once upon a time, 
There was a great king. And when he ruled, everything blossomed. The people flourished. The cities were glad. The streets ran with gold. But something has taken the king away. And now things have fallen into ruin and despair. But we look for the day when the king will come back. Do you have any idea how many stories there are about that? I mean, even today, these are what our stories are about. We make kings out of superheroes, right? Crime fighters, mystic warriors with laser swords. And when whoever returns, the Jedi return, the king return, fill in the blank returns, the world will be freed and healed. Evil will be broken. But why is this? Why do we fixate on kings when the actual record of kings in the earth is abysmal? You read the history. I mean, the reign of kings is all about tyranny, oppression, despotism, slavery. And almost every kingship in the world has been toppled or at least rendered neutral or neutered. In its place, a democracy has been put or a close version of it. Still, why is there an obsession with royalty today? I mean, the prince or princess gets married. Man, everybody goes nuts. Why is there in our nation a large percentage of the population who, every four years, looks to crown a political king save a nation? See, Republicans had to learn the hard way. Bush wasn't a king. Democrats have had to learn the hard way, Obama's not a king, see? But still, we look for a savior, a, a kind of a king to come and to put our nation back together and make us whole. Why are we constantly trying to crown kings in our culture? What are we doing? See, what we're doing is this. We're doing only what we're hardwired to do. What we're doing is following the scent of our heart back to what we need, a king, a true king. But if we don't find the true king, history says, Humanity will do this. We'll always find a false king and put that in its place. Now, there is a true king, and to the degree we receive him or reject him, Psalm 2, Judges 21 teaches us there will be flourishing and freedom, or there'll be decay and despair. But Psalm 2 doesn't just tell us there is a king. Psalm 2 also tells us what people do with this king. Look at this. It says the kings of the earth. It says rise up, and the rulers Band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Well, why do people reject this king? What are they trying to get rid of? Well, the translation here says shackles, but more rightly, it ought to say the word yoke. There's a yoke, it says. This king has put on the people, and they hate it. In other words, these people aren't upset because they're a prisoner. No, they're upset because they have an owner. They have an owner. There is someone demanding that they follow the king, and that's what they want nothing to do with. And this is why right here, the Bible says that the human heart, hear this, doesn't just disbelieve or not believe in God. The Bible says the human heart is fundamentally wired with enmity towards God or hatred towards God. You say, oh, God, hatred? Man, don't most people believe in God today, Morgan? I mean, don't most Americans believe uh, in God? Have you seen the polls? Well, Recently, a man named Michael Kinsley in the New Republic, he's a writer there for Time Magazine, he wrote an article along that line of thinking in which he questioned the people who say, you know, America's growing increasingly secular today, increasingly anti-God. He said, well, sure, there are pockets where Christianity or God isn't embraced, you know, Manhattan, L.A., D.C. But he says, listen, overall, he asked, is it easier today to get up on our culture and say, I do believe in God? or I don't believe in God. And he said, because it's easier today to get up in our culture and say, I do believe in God. He said, look, people aren't hostile towards faith or God, but he's wrong. Let me say this. He's wrong. And this right here is where the Bible gets really challenging. See, the Bible doesn't say that people, that we are hostile to the idea of God's existence or to a heaven. No. It says people are hostile towards the person of God himself. People aren't against an idea of God who just does whatever we want him to, right? No. Let the God of Micah and his mother here. No, people aren't against that God. 
People are against and hate the biblical God. The God who thunders from Mount Sinai, who gives the Ten Commandments, who says, I will by no means clear the guilty. Who says, be holy as I am holy. And then we hate the God who comes in the form of his son Jesus later. He says, oh, if your love for me doesn't look like hate towards your family, if you don't give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. Oh, we hate that God. See, we hate that God. Why? We want a king, but we hate the yoke. We hate the yoke. The God who says, you're my possession. I have a right to you. You say, well, that's just kind of tough. Man, I just believe in a God of love. See, I rest my case. Rest my case. See, we hate the king, right? Tells us he owns us. You say, Morgan, man, people who reject God, they're just skeptics, right? They don't don't have enough evidence. No, no, it's not that. Listen, church people hate the yoke too. People who sit in church for years, I did it. Oh, we hate the king as well. We use God and morality in our rules and whatever attendance and know in the Bible. We use that so we don't have to really obey God. We know him, right? We give him lip service. No, church people, oh, they hate God too, right? We want to avoid the king. We have a king, but we hate the king. Oh, but ultimately, friends, we need the king. Why? We need a king, and I hope you've seen that this morning, just like the people of Judges needed to call us out of our little lives and break the power of sin over us. We need a king because every heart, do you realize every heart will worship something? We need the king. This king, the true king, because only this king can be trusted with your heart. You say, well, how can you say that? Here's how. Because once upon a time, there was a king who got up off his throne. He gave up his power and became a peasant himself. And though this peasant king loved and served and healed the people that he met in the land, he talked about a greater life and a greater kingdom, far greater than the people could even imagine. But the other peasants, they didn't want him to rule. They didn't want the kind of kingdom he talked about. And they put that peasant king to death. But of course, what they couldn't have known was that this peasant was no ordinary person. He was the king, and true kings can't be stopped. This king took the punishment for what they had done, died. But he came back to life to unleash now his new kingdom in the earth. And all those, he said, who will receive them, will receive him. He will save and change and rescue from small lives and from dragon eggs. You say, where does that begin? Where Psalm 2 leaves us. It ultimately says this. It says, we need to kiss the son or kiss the king. That's the word that means to honor or to give loyalty to. Years ago, I was 19 years old, a freshman at the University of Houston. And though I'd grown up in a church background like many of you have and many of our children will, thankfully, I had grown to hate the king and hate his yoke. I could recite to you the 66 books of the Bible, 10 commandments, 12 disciples, 9 fruit of the Spirit. If it had a list, I could regurgitate it. But I did it as a way of keeping God from being my owner. I didn't want his lordship. And a teammate of mine invited me into a room full of just crazy college students. The man at the front called me out of the crowd at the end. He says, Morgan. He didn't know me, so I, I, sorry, I put that word in there. He said, listen, you, you, God's got a plan for your life. It's greater than what you could ever imagine. And he began to prophesy over me to say things that only a loving and supernatural God can know. And in a moment of time, I felt God's spirit fall upon me. I began to weep and cry. I was snot-nosed and gross-faced on this big guy. And he began to, had to hold me up. He didn't care. I prayed a simple prayer. I said, Lord, make me new. 
What was I doing? I was surrendering to the king. Surrendering to the king. I said, oh, I take your yoke upon me, which in the end is far easier and far lighter than the yoke of sin and the perversion and the addictions I had. And Jesus changed me and he came in and he put his little DNA strand of the spirit of God in me. And guess what? Man, you get the DNA of your daddy, what's going to happen? You're going to look like him. Things changed. Not everything's changed. Some things have taken a lot longer. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. (laughs) Work in progress, all of us. But yet... When the seed of the kingdom comes in, see, it grows. It pushes everything out. We have a king, but we hate him. But yet we need him. We need him. And let me tell you something this morning. A true Christian is someone who can admit, I've hated the king. I've hated the yoke. I've hated his ownership in my life. But yet I, I realize I need him. He's the only one that can save me. It says, kiss the son unless you perish. Oh, we don't like that. Perish. Are you kidding me? Unless you be perished. And his anger consumes you. Listen, God's wrath is just. If you love someone, oh, aren't you angry at what sin does to them? I love my son, therefore I'm angry with the sin that they do or that's committed against him. My love sparks my wrath, see, against evil. And God's wrath is the same. It doesn't twist. It actually makes right and whole. And if we'll come and say, oh, Lord, would you make me new this morning? I want you, the true king. That can be the same for you. I hope some of you will have the courage to do that as we pray and close.